What you drinking, Brian? I am drinking a Shiner Cosmos, which is one of their special reserves. I don't know if I've had it on here before or not. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't want to go super duper quadruple tonight because I've been haven't I've been detoxing from the weekend, so. I um yeah I'm gonna go well it's not it's not really weak it's just a it's a nice I like this one a lot so it's a special beer it's I'm it, it comes in lighter a, than a quadruple though well yes but it comes in a uh, it's yes yeah, definitely not we're not talking BLL or anything like that but um <laughs> it's it's um it's comes in the family reunion packs that Shiner sells which have like a Hefeweizen and a regular Shiner Bock and a Shiner Blonde and one of their special whatever their current special is and then they always have two Cosmos and they don't sell this in six packs or 12 packs and oh. it it infuriates so me Ta- it only comes in those because half of no, those beers. We've had, we've had this conversation before. You must have drunk it on the show, or or we've had this conversation otherwise. Yeah. So, anyways, it it should be sold by itself, and it's not. But uh, yeah, I'm having one of those. Okay. Cool. What are you drinking? Tea. I'm I'm drinking Lady Grey. Tea. <laughs> you can't even say that without laughing <laughs> I know I feel completely weak sauce but um and I am I'm actually kind of sick but uh god I can't even make fun of you for being the I'm detoxing because I'm all I'm in training <laughs> so, <laughs> which is yeah which is oh, true oh that's right you're you're an athlete now I forgot <laughs> you work for Nike and you climb mountains no th- this doesn't have all that much to do with working for Nike but I I am climbing a mountain in 17 days and I'm trying to do like 28 days of cleanliness beforehand, which is working just fabulously. Um, and I feel like I should not drink beer tonight cause I had McDonald's for breakfast. So, um, <laughs> so, wait a second. You sacrificed a drink on the toolbar for no, McDonald's? I, I haven't, I have not actually been drinking. I definitely have drunk a couple of times, uh, since I started the whole training thing, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, I'm not, truly, I was going to drink, didn't I, didn't I text you yesterday with my beer choice? But I was yeah. prevented, I was prevented from buying beer. Um, and, <laughs> the, <laughs> so I, I was going to drink, but, and I, I want to tell everybody, cause this is the awesome uh, this is the awesomest beer. It's called Men's Room. Well, I mean, I don't know. I haven't drunk it yet. Um, I didn't have my ID, and apparently, I still get carded. So, uh, but it, anyway, it was it was a very promising sounding beer from Elysian, which has not let me down yet. Um, okay, we haven't even talked to our guest yet. Did you know that we have a guest on the show tonight? I I had a feeling. Um, <laughs> Just one of those weird feelings, you know, like a, like like she's already been laughing and chiming uh, in. All right, yeah, <laughs> so, so a, good. What are you drinking, Jane? <clears throat> um, in honor of Brian Dusablon, I have a Grimberg and Double. Ooh. Oh, I knew um, I am very because jealous. he introduced he introduced me to that. It's not really a summer beer. It's kind of heavy and it's kind of chocolatey and it's a little bit wintry. But you know, I felt that in, because we're doing this, I should. Uh, break out one of my Grimbergers. Now, here's the thing. I can't get it here. There is uh, Carlson um, is the distributor. Apparently, there's been some falling out in the Raleigh-Durham metro area. Oh, 
with the with the distributor and so my husband got me a case uh on his way through cincinnati where he goes to watch baseball games every summer so i am down to my last six pack and it was a big call but i decided for for brian tonight i should have a, a grimbergen double so. well that's a very fine choice and it, it is, is baseball season so you can it get is some more soon <clears throat> it is and i found out it is everywhere in toronto i go to canada and i can get it in every bar every, everybody has it and you don't see that ever here so I had a feeling that you would be drinking that because you introduced me to it at DevLearn, Mm. and so I guess it all comes around excellent beer. Well, shout out to Chris Rockwell because he's the one that introduced it to me. So he is my beer guru. So I'm not excellent, excellent. I don't, I don't doubt that at all. But see, this is uh, we could turn this into a whole hour conversation on the power of social networking. I think we should. This is clearly we could do six degrees of Chris Rockwell's beer choices. Um, I could break out the Calique, and I would love to if I had one. I totally would. Now, that's one of those things I wish I could find here. We just yeah, had absolutely. big um, state, so just touching on the uh, distribute distribution thing, we just had a huge state legislature thing get passed, and there was some weird, you know, how government works. There was some weird deal where if one of the, if one of the bills failed, there were four, then all four would fail. And it all had to do with craft brew distribution and – um, allowing people to come and buy on site, and, just, and so in Texas, Silver Eagle and the the Bud Light, the Budweiser, Behemoths, and Miller Light own everything, and um, that was a huge, huge battle. But we, but I think it's I think it's at Slick Rick's desk now, so we'll see if it goes through all the way. That would but, never uh, happen here. But that, that's it's just crazy. Cause yeah. it's like, come on, we <laughs> just want to you- buy more good beer, but you're making me look at. 18 rows of Bud Light on the shelf. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway. I don't, I don't even go to, like, I don't go to a liquor store or beer store or anything. Like, I've never been to a liquor store in the Portland area. I mean, I just, for beer, I just go to the grocery store, and it's all, like, awesome craft beers. My ASTD chapter has has their, their meetups in bars and local pubs, um, which I don't know if that's normal. It wasn't in Kansas City for sure, but... At one point, a couple of weeks ago, I went to two e-learning and learning technology-related meetups in one night in pubs. Mm. Different pubs. Yeah, anyway, and I wasn't even doing the show. That kind of stuff <laughs> is frowned upon in Texas. Why? You know, these Southern Baptist-filled ridiculousness thing. But, uh, no, but um, <clears throat> we, do, we do this here. You know, I live um, about four miles from Chris Benz, who's with the e-learning guild. And for a time, he would get a few folks together at lunchtime or, or what have you, and someone else has taken that over now. But our problem was the bars were just too – it was too loud. You couldn't really talk. Oh. So we don't have any um, – I, I am not in that particular part of, of the south. I, I am surrounded by it. <laughs> but you know, Chapel Hill, Durham, Raleigh, right. um, we, we don't have quite the uh, stigma and frowning upon that you might get some other place. I've seen that, but not here. There, there are some loud bars, but there are plenty of nice, low-key pubs here that are just. That's good. Yeah. That's good. So, and the local ASTD chapter is very cool. So they just whatever. I, I, I guess I should have been more explicit that probably we were the ones who were loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, <Maybe. that> be... <laughs> Oops! Oops! <laughs> Throw the bums out. <laughs> um, so whoever hasn't guessed, our guest is Jane Bozarth. Um, queen of the e-learning and learning technology, uh, workplace learning. God, I'm going to have to edit that. Internet. 
Um, queen of Queen of the Internet's fine. Yeah, that works. <laughs> we can just sure. cut that short middle net. part out. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm I, I can tell you that I'm I'm very happy to have Jane on the show in May because now her work has been on all of the major learning and development outlets <laughs> in May. Now that she's hey. been on, now that she's been on emergent radio on the toolbar. <laughs> this is the pinnacle. This is the culmination. <laughs> she's hit all of the major outlets. <laughs> Forget e-learning guild ASTD training magazine, you know. Now you've made it, Jane. Don't discount yourself. Everything's important. <laughs> Well, and We're this is the this is our first social media expert, I think, that's on oh, the show. Lord. <laughs> Never ever trust anybody who calls himself a social media expert. I'm so not a there. social media expert. <laughs> well, you have more than 124 followers. So I have more than 124 than followers. That's but, good. You're but little... that does not define expertise. It's kind of scary, really, the number of people running around calling themselves experts. Yeah. Well, I think that's well, that's really interesting. That like. No, that doesn't define expertise, but um, it, it's a metric that everyone can see. And why would you call yourself an expert if, I don't know, we, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, we see it a lot. Well, there's also, you know, I noticed at, when I was at ICE, there are pocket, what I would call pockets of expertise or types of expert. There are people who I think are genuinely social media marketing experts. Right. You know, I do think there are people that are good at that and they know how to do it. I don't like that social media gets used as much as it does for that, but um I recently was at an event. We won't we won't say which one, but I was at an event, and I spent most of my time there dealing with the fallout from somebody who had announced the best thing about Twitter is you could set up auto tweets and just tweet and tweet and tweet all day long, and and it completely lost the idea of interacting with anybody or con or, or having conversation or developing a personal learning network. Everybody's on fire about which auto tool should I use for tweeting. You know, and and this person is an expert who's given out this advice to to trainers. It was kind of uh, I think, frustrating. I think I saw some tweets on that uh, from that event on that on that topic. Yeah, yeah. that's a little crazy. And there, and it was, and especially when that particular um, functionality is so often so often gets companies into trouble. Yes, and I, I talked about that too. I'm like, you need to be really careful. Look at what went on during the Boston Marathon. Right. Look what was going on during the Aurora shooting. You, know, you need to make sure if you've got stuff loaded into a queue that you shut that down or you know what's pending. You know, don't, don't schedule months of updates. But it was just really frustrating. The one time we have a really big chance to um, convey the importance of using Twitter, show really good examples or show the examples of microblogging. Yammer was on site and they were doing great stuff, Allison Michaels and her team. And it was just really frustrating that this is what people were coming away with. Isn't it great we can load up a thousand tweets and not have to talk to anybody? Right, <laughs> right. You know, it's, oh man, it's like one step up and two steps back. So just there's another, your experts. Another lovely example of it's all about the tools, right? That well, yeah, and it's and it's you know be careful who you think is an expert. This probably they were there are auto tools. They were probably giving a very compelling demonstration of fifteen tools, but what they were demonstrating was not useful or, yeah, or the best bad practice. No, that's what so, I mean. Anyway, you didn't mean to go down that path. Tools Sorry, it was just, no, that's okay. It we was can last talk. week. It was a, it happened a lot. So. We can talk about whatever we want because it's our show, right? Over, over our, right. our beers and tea. That's right. That's right. I was at a. I don't. Re, I don't even remember now anymore. I was in high school. I was at a concert and somebody kept yelling out songs they wanted to hear. And finally, he stopped and he said, "It's my show." 
<sighs> okay. That's is that it? Is that it? Yeah, that you was done, the show. You done, Judy? No. <laughs> well, you can jump in any time, Brian. So, Jane, you have a you have a topic though. Speaking of events, um, I saw you on the Ignite stage at DevLearn talking mm-hmm. about showing your work, which mm-hmm. is something you have done a lot of writing a lot lately. And I want mm-hmm. to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And you have an event coming up too, so be sure mm-hmm. to mention that. Mm-hmm. But tell us about the concept. I am on fire <laughs> about narrating work. Um, it did, uh, what I'm doing with it right now did emerge or evolve from a DevLearn Ignite presentation that you were there, you did one too, uh, last November, November 2012. And what I see in my real world, because I work for North Carolina State Government, um, You know, I see a lot of things like activity reports. I see a lot of status meetings. I see a lot of, I did this and I did this and I went here and I did that. But but you don't really get a sense of what it is that people do all day. You don't really get a sense of the problems they encounter. What you end up with is this really hierarchical view of activities, without a whole lot of understanding of why somebody did that or whether this was harder than that was or how they learned to do it. So I've gotten very, very interested in paying attention to how people show what they're doing, explain what they're doing, tell about what they're doing. And we just have so many fabulous tools for that now that that make it very easy to either record or write or or narrate or some do something with it to capture it and then share it with everybody. Um, that it just seems like we we've kind of hit a moment where the need and the ability and the tools all kind of come together at once. This kind of goes back to My graduate work and my dissertation, I did a lot of work with communities of practice and social learning back then. And one of the things that that emerged then that came to my attention is that organizations are desperately trying to capture tacit knowledge and they're just not very good at it. There is this belief that management seems to hold that – and I think that that some of us, the geeks among us, and I can be one – have created a belief that that knowledge can be captured as discrete pieces of data in a spreadsheet. And we may know what somebody does. We may have a list of things that they perform. We may even have a, a sheet that has the outcomes they achieved. But we don't really know how work gets done. We know what somebody does, but not how they did it. And my favorite example of this, I had a, <clears throat> we had a guy at work. His name's Grant. Uh, and this is state government, so the purchasing is a nightmare. Any, you know, buying paper clips is a headache. Grant was like Radar O'Reilly. He knew what you needed before he, you needed it. He knew how to get a check cut on a day they didn't cut checks. He knew how to get signatures from people who, who were out of the office. He knew who to go to, who could sign by proxy. He would take paperwork to somebody and just sit there until it got approved. I mean, he was, he was um, both was the word I'm looking for. He was very persistent, but he was very smart. He was very savvy about how to navigate the organization, how to navigate their bureaucracy. And he had a boss who, 
for lack of a better word, seemed a little bit threatened by, by Grant's effectiveness. And she always knew better. And she never really sat down with him to learn about what he did all day. And a whole lot of what Grant was doing was sort of cultivating contacts, knowing who knew who, uh, you know, greasing the wheels a little bit if somebody, you know, taking somebody to lunch once in a while and making sure they were on a friendly relationship so that when Grant needed something, yeah, he could get it when other people could not. And when he left, they had him write down what he did, but it it so did not capture what Grant did to get his job done. It, 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 we have not really recovered from it yet. It's been six years. We really haven't replaced him. And it's still a big struggle to get simple things done that he used to be able to get done in his sleep. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think if we had spent more time with Grant saying, show me how you did that. Let's go around and talk to some of the people you interact with. That would have been way more effective than locking them in a room and saying, write down how you do things. Yeah, exactly. It's much better to people, observe. People don't do very well with that question anyway. If you say, write down yeah. what you do, they will just give you a list of, I do this and I do this and I do this. But when you say, how did you get that done? Or show me how you did that. Or tell me how you learned that. Or tell me what mistakes you made and what you do differently. You get a really different, much better quality response from that. Well, it sounds like in his case, it's about the contacts as well. I'm like, I'm thinking about how much that's very applicable to what I do as well. And I mean, my organization is very connection oriented and I really need that sort of, I mean, this is a tangent, but I really need to cultivate that sort of thing. Um, and, but, but, but I'm sure that there's a lot of how in that as well, not just who. Well, yeah. And, and I think, you know, of 20 people to connect with, he had figured out the right ones. He was very good at, at, I guess, navigating political waters, or he had a really good sense of who was connected to somebody else or who had the real power. You know, very often you may need a boss's signature, but really an admin can sign. And he had a really good sense of who he needed to know. And it, it, it was, he was very effective at it, like I said, and, and we really haven't recovered from We never really did replace him. Um, but, you know, another thing that, that happens in that situation, had we been working with him sooner or had his boss not been threatened or we had, you know, he had a partner or somebody he was mentoring, you, know, you wouldn't be so left in the lurch when an employee leaves, which is when a lot of organizations just start reeling. Some key player leaves and they, they can't pick up where he left off. Uh, I know that Mark Britz has talked to me about that very problem at, at his previous job. He said, you know, there's all a, we have a lot of contract workers who come and go, and right in the middle of it, somebody takes a real job or a full-time job, and they leave, and we can't pick up the threads there. We aren't very good at capturing what that person has been doing. Um, so there's there's that. But But we also, you know, we have, I think we've reached this age where people – have learned they like to talk about what they're doing and they've found ways to do it. It's not unusual at all now to see somebody blogging. Kevin Thorne wrote a great post the other day about um, some cartoon characters. He's been working on a serious comic. He's kind of on fire about that lately. And he did a, a really nice before and after of some rough sketch characters he was working on and, and how they came out as the final. And some of them were very close in the first place. Some of them were very different. But he talked about the character development. And he just wrote it up as a blog post. And it's that's, that's very yeah. helpful to people in this business. He didn't just say, here's before and after. And he didn't just, and this is important, he didn't just say, here's the finished final polished product right right you know he Showed said the this process. is what i had trouble with this is why i went this way this is what i had to do and it's it's not hard it's just you know it's a, a single screen i don't even think you have to scroll to see it all um but that kind of thing is very helpful to people in the field uh craig taylor 
in the UK. I want to say he's in London, but I might be making that up. But he's British. He he is very big on narrating what he's working on. An example he gave me when I guess when we were at DevLearn was was that he is the instructional design training kind of guy in his organization, and one work unit wanted his help and um in refining a PowerPoint show. And so Craig, rather than just take it and fix it and send it back, he 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 fixed it and he has the original slides as hidden slides in the final deck and he talked through why you would want this color this way, why you wouldn't want the template that way, why he and he, he explained to them why the changes. He he did what he did and they loved it. They loved it and now other people in the organization are asking for his help and it's made him very visible, which is another thing. You know, we all do a lot of stuff that management doesn't even know about. Management doesn't even know if we've done something that was hard or especially challenging or that we had to really work through something with a difficult stakeholder and, and that kind of thing captures it so it's not so opaque, right? I'm talking too much. I'm sorry. No, no, not at all. Not, um, um, I'm thinking... I want to talk I, – I can see how a lot of this would play out in, like, showing somebody how you do something on your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've seen a lot of the same – I think there was a recent um, – I want to say that somebody articulated – it was probably Tom Kuhlman said – he had a little screener of, you know, this is, this is a lot of the value in the workshops is that people can – they may know that you can do something or technically know how to do something, but just watching me do it – like watching an expert do it is a lot more valuable. They catch up, catch all these little tips and, you know, hidden things and whatever. Um, so I can, I can see how that, that plays out in, um, in computer based work. Mm-hmm. How else have you found it valuable? Well, and I, and I think what's important about that example is, and this is confusing for people in our field. I've, I've run into some people who had a really hard time with this. Showing somebody how to do something isn't necessarily teaching them. It's not necessarily sitting down and doing instruction, right? It may just be click, 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 and this is that. And it may that may be all there is is right. to it. Um, and I think that that was the same thing with the workshops is that it, it wasn't even necessarily that's what he was teaching. It's just right. that he was doing right. some work and observing it, just seeing how an expert does it was – anyway. Um, this is it. kind of frightening actually, but do you know what always actually gets the biggest response when I do – a, a lot of my presentations, you won't know the answer to this. It's a stupid question. Go Almost ahead. everyone so at some point will ask me how I made the screen go black. Yes. And it's from it's from pressing the B sure, key. B, you have to have yeah. the PowerPoint show up and running, and it's B will black the screen. And right. I can't tell you the, the impression this makes on people every time I do it. Or W will it's wipe like the Jane screen, but it looks stupid. Yeah, no kidding. It's like, Jane really, is look magic. at me now. Jane is That's the only awesome. person in the world who knew how to do this. It's kind of funny. All right, in my world, to your, to your point about the computer training, see, sometimes I find it frustrating to have somebody sit and show me what they do on a computer, especially yeah. if they are an expert. Tom is really good. Yeah. And Tom's an instructor, but sometimes the subject matter expert types want to show you the 73 shortcuts you could do instead and not just, here's one way to do it, Jane, go to your office and don't bother me anymore. <laughs> so, so there's that. It's like, oh, you could do this or you could do this, or you could just hit F9 and hold the control key down with your pinky and hold your mouth right and, it, you know, and we'll do that. But in my world, I have, uh, I have a couple of situations. One of them is that I have a big chunk of our workforce that is low literacy. So we have um, 
for instance, you know, we have all of the prisons, we have all of the the state-run hospitals, so we have a lot of housekeepers and groundskeepers and food service workers who may have a very good uh, tacit understanding of how to perform a process or may have a lot of experience in doing something. These people are not necessarily writers. They aren't necessarily um, asked for their opinion very often or asked to show what they know, but they may be the very one in the building that knows how to fix the widget, who knows how to um, plate 400 hot meals and get them out at one time, who knows how to uh, trim the topiary in front of one of the children's wards at the hospital. And, and capturing what they know matters a lot, too, because that is exactly the kind of job that requires a little bit of craftsmanship or maybe something you have to sort of develop a knack for that can really leave somebody in the lurch if that employee leaves. I mean, if you suddenly have somebody who can't plate 400 hot meals, you really are up the creek. Yeah, you know, we all be. think what we do is so important, but you have a day where the prison guards are out sick and you see what your world will be like, right? <laughs> right. right? I, I mean, I know, but <laughs> I, I know we all like to flatter ourselves, but sometimes people have jobs. Really, it's critical that they're there and they do what they do. So I think that that's a really um, – there's a lot of potential for helping to capture there. And the thing about the tools with that sector, and I don't mean to, to to say that they're not bright. I don't mean to say they're not educated and they can't write. I'm just saying we know we have literacy issues, um, especially with, with the, the direct care staff, with the, with the, the, the janitorial staff, the ground staff. Um, you know, you can, you can now blog by voice. You can tell Siri to post as a status Facebook, a Facebook update, you can take a picture of what you're working on. We, we've got a workforce approaching 100% mobile phone access. doesn't even have to be a smartphone. Most of those phones have cameras. So, you know, we have tools now that allow for those people to participate more and for us to capture better what they're doing. I suspect with those groups, because I've worked with them in, in a previous job years ago, so I know this used to be the case. I think that we are spending an awful lot of time in formal training with some of those job categories where really a book of pictures probably would be as useful. Right. Right. Some um, kind of apprenticeship thing. Yeah. And it's some, a virtual somebody, or pictures yeah, yeah, or whatever. Apprenticeship and mentorship, I think, would be, would be important. So I see it uh, in, a, in a lot of areas. I know there's, a, there's also an element of this that is new or uncomfortable or unusual for organizations. And, and it's sort of the example I was saying when I, when I made the, um, the example with Kevin. Having somebody show you what went wrong and how they fixed it can be really, really valuable. Having them say what failed. And so many people are scared to do that in their organizations. The cultures don't tolerate that very well. The cultures try to squish that um, down. But there is a wonderful 30-minute video by the 2010 Teacher of the Year. Her name is Sarah Wessling. It's available on a teacher-ish site like Teach. It's not teacher two, but it's one of those. But you could you could Google for her. But she goes in one day with, with her high school students, and she's got this lesson on the crucible, and the kids are going to do yada, yada. And it completely blows up while she's being videotaped. Everything went wrong. The kids didn't understand it. The kids got frustrated. Everybody was unhappy. She couldn't. And, and she owns it. She talks about, oh, my gosh, this didn't work. I got five minutes to regroup before my next class gets here. She talks all this out loud. And then when the next class gets there, she does it differently. And after the, that class is over, she continues to talk. She says, well, this is what I was thinking, and these were the assumptions I made. She said, I think other people would have said the kids were being disrespectful. But the truth is, I had to ask myself, why are they acting this way? Because they usually don't, and it must be because of something I did. 
So she owns the failure. She says she caused it. She shows how she fixes it. She even goes and talks to a colleague about what happened and admits that it was her fault, and, and, and they talk through that together. I think that would be way more valuable to the novice teacher. This is what happened, and this is what went wrong, and this is how I made it better than just some exemplar of look at our best teacher in the whole world doing her fabulous thing. Yeah. Which I suspect they see a lot of, but have right. somebody say, I failed, I blew it, this went wrong, this is what I did, I think is infinitely more valuable. And we need more people willing to take that risk and more organizations that won't punish people who take that risk. So, so circling back to, to capturing some of this, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's certainly, obviously, for computer stuff, it's pretty easy. For even let's say folks that with mobile phones with cameras and some things they could you know capture some pictures maybe do some narration or something later or so, you know something else what um what about capturing the failures or what about um i guess any other you know that's sort of it, maybe maybe a picture's not the right way maybe it's how to how to have a conversation with somebody or how to do certain things. <laughs> what are the ways to capture that and share that? Um, have you either experienced or do you recommend or any of that? Um, the Gammer team, I was interviewing them for, um, I have a magazine piece on this in this month's TND magazine um, called Show Your Work. And actually some of the sidebar material got cut for length that I, this may have been part of that. But the Yammer team sometimes does things like, Late in an afternoon when things are kind of cranking down, somebody will will post out quick what's everybody working on right now. And Allison Michaels, who who is my contact at Yammer, and I think most of you know her. She's she's pretty mm-hmm. big on Twitter. Um, will she says that that they'll get answers like I'm really struggling with this problem. I'm having a hard time with this client. I don't know what to do with this situation. You know, that is where that kind of stuff comes out. It doesn't come out in a staff meeting. Right, uh, and it doesn't really come out in the hallway so much. But but having it come out there, you may very well get, oh yeah, I've had that too. Or you may get, yes, you need to go past Judy and get to Brian to get that worked out. I mean, you may get get the the response there and get it captured in the conversation that way. Um, as far as as failures go, um, I have talked a lot about this one. I have used it a lot of times in in management examples, and I've blogged about it, I think. I've written about it somewhere. It might be in a book. But my first step into – and this is, I think, an important lesson for leaders. I think it must have been Jay Cross and I talking about this. For leaders, when I was new in my current job as the e-learning – I was the e-learning person. I was the first person. I'm going to do this for the state. We're going to launch this thing. We got this thing developed, and it was huge. It was big. It was public. We were launching to one of our our agencies that was a small agency, but it was still a big deal. I had talked to IT. We had talked about – I mean, it was in the day when you had to have to make sure the machines had Netscape on them or whatever, right? Um, and the whole thing exploded. Every everything went wrong. Everything I had even anticipated and thought I had iron. Everything went wrong. And I knew this was going to be embarrassing for my organization. I was new in this job, and it had all been so hyped. I went down to my boss's office, and I, you know, I owned. I said, "This has happened," and I, you know, it's my fault. And my boss looked at me. She was my new boss, and she said, "Well, this is why we pilot." That was her whole response. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if more bosses could respond that way, I think more people would surface stuff that's going wrong or stuff that they're struggling with. So I have seen, back to your question, I have seen people blog about this. I have seen um, 
in the case of Sarah Wessling, I, I have seen people make recordings, but you know, you can't always anticipate failure. The, the recorder just happened to be on that day, right? So you, yeah. can't, you don't really go in anticipating. I have seen a lot of examples, though, of things like this is what went wrong and how I fixed it. Jennifer Hoffman's first book, The Synchronous Trainer's Survival Guide, is kind of a whole testament to learning stuff as we go and some of time some of the times she made a mistake she said that one of her her biggest events failed because it was scheduled this would have been you know back when the internet was still fairly new or or new to most of us that that one of her biggest failures came um the day she had a big event scheduled she's going to be online like via webex or whatever we had back then illuminate probably it was the day the kenneth star report was released and basically the internet tubes all over the world were clogged for two days and everything collapsed, everything failed. And she talked about the need to sort of do a temperature check and know what was going on in the world. So she wrote a lot in a, in a book about that and she has talked about that in, in developing her design courses and offering her, um, her classes that way. So I think that that's another way to do it. Um, but I, I suspect there's a lot more of that than we know about. I, of course, there was the day Julia Child cut her hand open. <laughs> really? I've heard about that. And never we all remember you need to be careful with knives. Um, yeah. There was one that was running through my brain, though, and now I can't think. It'll, it'll, things go around and come around. They'll come back. But. Well, I think, the, I think the capturing it and, and being able to reflect on it at the same time, I think obviously writing about it is the easiest thing to do if you can but you're right you, you have to encourage people that have failed at something to go ahead and document it or write about it and write about what their experience was and what what they learned from it and that's right. not like you said it's not it's not encouraged in a lot of organizations it's not um it's not even encouraged socially in a lot of places right Right. Um, but, but now I need to say it's not always easy to write. It depends on who you are, whether it's easy to write about it. It's easy for us to write about it. Well, I would even. Back to some of the people I was talking about earlier, they're never going to be writers. They're not right. going to be bloggers. Um, so we need to, to you know, be sure we're giving them some options. But you can talk through what you're doing. It, it's very easy now to record stuff. It's very easy to do a video. And I think my favorite example really is probably Bob Ross. Bob Ross with his happy little trees. trees. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just turn the video on and he would say, and, and you make a little tree with these little points and you do the little clouds. Oops, I made a mistake. Let me fix that. And you would watch him kind of do that as he went. And the world kept turning when he made a mistake. But I, I think I think what to capture and how to capture in that instance is not as big a deal as allowing people to say that they made mistakes or they failed. Hey, you know, you have to be, I'm not one for over governance. Everybody knows that about me, I think, but you do have to be careful if you're talking about a client or you're talking about, well, I I broke this, this thing that cost a million dollars or I broke, you know, I I broke something. I, I made a mistake and during surgery, that would not be, you know, there's only so much people are going to be willing to There's do that. But, uh, that but to. to that point, you know, Atul Gawande has written a number of times about things he did that were medical mistakes, mistakes during surgery, things he wishes he had done differently, things he learned the hard way. Um, again, he's a writer. Yeah. But I don't think it's always would easy even more. for somebody who is – I mean, that's – this is to a large extent what I wanted. I did not, I was not able to articulate it at the time that I started my blog, but this was the kind of thing that I wanted to do. And honestly, well, it's difficult to do emotionally. I mean, it's difficult, even if you feel like something was a success to, to put something out there, you know, it can Mm -hmm. be difficult. Um, But I think that it's also been, um, 
well, in addition to all the all the other reasons that you don't blog, um, I think that right now, oddly enough, that people wouldn't expect this, but I probably have the the most accepting uh, employer in terms of me putting work out there and thoughts out there and blogging openly about what I do. Um, you know, it's 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 pretty cool most of the stuff that I want to. So I would like I'm you know it's just something that I I'm interested in in part because I want to do more of this and I think that the instructional design field and our culture needs a lot more of that. We need to see each other's work. So you know if if only just for that, just to be able to see you know examples or whatever, just or just to get more into the culture of sharing. Right, and not just you know, like like. You say the finished product, but how we got there. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's, who is it, Judy? Is it the base camp people? Oh, God, but, do... yeah, 37 Signals. You, I love you talk about that their a minute. Book. Yeah. Oh, well, they just, I think I've just sent you this before. Um, you did? How they, um, they, their blog, the 37 Signals blog, or Signal versus Noise is their right, blog. Right. Um, and they just talk very openly about how they work, how they do design, how they do customer support, how they do project management, software development. And, you know, it's it's very transparent. And, I mean, through that, they're promoting their own reflection. They are allowing everyone to reflect on what might work and what might not work for them. Um, you know, it's just... It's just very sort of open spirited, and sometimes they're saying, "Oh, we messed up," you know. Or, I mean, it's just just reading. Um, there was one blog post about a. Um, I think this is the one that I sent you, Jane, um, about how they were designing different logos for uh, a refresh yes. of their blog appearance. You know, just just looking at, and again it had like this was the first idea and then we scrapped that we wanted to do this you know and this was the next one this was the, and this was the final idea just kind of working through that um uh process um was just i think it would be incredibly helpful for a graphic designer and i just think of how most of us operate we're on one person teams um or you know maybe we just don't have the culture or the tools or whatever to share um, and that's my observation anyway in the instructional design field. We don't have um, the culture of show and critique or whatever you might have in a web design field or graphic design field. Um, what The things that you learn in design school, we often don't have as a part of our culture. Um, so, uh, so, you know, it, it just seems like a, a very valuable tool set for us to gain, uh, to yeah. show each other what we're doing and how we're doing it and why. Well, and to your point, you know, one of the things I've run into a lot with the social media uh, stuff has been people who want me to give them some magic chart that will say this is the one perfect tool. Right. You want to do yada, yada, yada. This is, and, and truly the answer always is it depends. It depends on what you will use. It depends on what your organization will allow. It depends on what your learners like. I mean, really, and it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's really hard, I think, for people to get that. So talking through why I chose this font Mm -hmm. Or what what we tried first, I think in many ways can be it, it more valuable than a chart saying here are 12 fonts, right? Um, there was a really good instance a couple of years ago. Blog chat happens, I think, on Sunday nights. And I am not much of a participant. It seems like I know a lot of people in it, so it's in my feed quite a bit. A couple of years ago, the, and they may do this more often. This is the one I'm aware of. They They asked people who wanted critiques on their blogs, you know, help with their blogs, what could they do to improve their blog? To send the URL to the moderators, and the moderators were going to choose three or four or five 
for the chat, right? They sent these out to everybody in the community, and that night the community came in and gave real feedback to these That's people. Great. And it was everything from your header is is inconsistent with the rest of the message or your, your content doesn't match your mission. It was great, and the people had volunteered to be critiqued. The critiques were very professional and very helpful. It wasn't just a bunch of you're an idiot like you might get on anonymous comment threads or, or long streams. It was very, very useful, but it takes a good deal of – of willingness to step up and, and say, I need help with this, show me what to do, and also some, some willingness to be part of the community and step up and say, here are what we think. So it was really, really effective. It was very impressive. Um, and I think they've probably done it again. But you know, my interest in this really, I don't know how much you were aware of how, how big this was for me, but a couple of years ago, a friend of mine uh, was a, an elementary school art teacher, and she had to have surgery on her hand, her dominant hand, of course, of course. And they told her she was going to have to find some kind of, of exercise for rehab, something that involved intricate work or, or working with her hands a lot. And she decided she wanted to learn to make cookies, bakery, decorated iced bakery cookies, right? And do you remember no, I did, this? I, I did see this in one of your articles, yeah. She um so what happened and I think th this is to back to what Brian was asking me I don't know that it's a matter of on Tuesday I made a mistake I think it's a matter of when we can capture somebody in our business my interest is capturing somebody as they're learning something and what happened is she decides she's gonna she got to have surgery and she was posting about that on Facebook and she's missing for a couple of weeks because she's getting this done and she comes back and she says okay so today was my first my first attempt at making the cookies and here are some pictures. And they're kind of trash, but it turns out that my husband – turns out husbands will eat trash if it's cookies. <laughs> and then Indeed. a couple of days later, she said, okay, I'm trying the icing, and I don't like the buttercream. It's too soft, and it's too runny. I like this other kind of icing. She didn't know she was doing this, right? She didn't really set out to say, I'm going to document my learning on Facebook. She just was interested in what she was working on. She started posting pictures and kind of commenting on what she was working on. A lot of people started paying attention to this. And she got really good. I mean, she, she got really, really good. She had a daughter 150 miles away who got into this with her. And now the daughter has quit her job and opened a cookie business that's doing really well. Nice. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think in this case, it was more emerged. The, 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 the things that were happening were just emerging as part of the learning. One day she said, I'm not really good at this kind of decoration. I'm better at this kind of cookie. I'm not doing well with the, the butter cookies too crumbly. And I lost a big batch of dough to that. So it's not so much, here's a horrible mistake. Let me document it. It was just the whole natural flow of what she was learning and how she learned it. And then suddenly one day you're like, oh, these are good enough. I could send them out as gifts. And then it's like, oh, these are good enough. I could charge. Nice. for them um, so it was interesting to watch somebody as they were documenting their learning without necessarily setting out to do that or realizing and I think one of the biggest problems we all know in, in our business is that we sit around all the time talking about learning with a capital L yeah. the people we are hoping are the learners don't think that way at all they think about I'm solving a problem I've got this thing I need to get done at work that I'm struggling with. They, you know, most of what they learn is unconscious and informal. Right. And it, it just happens and they don't think of it as learning with a capital L. So we have an assumption that they have, they're mindful about that. And I don't, I don't, I think that that's a big assumption on our part. Yeah. So do you think, do you think it, it would be useful to have folks that are able to interview those people or 
um, have a conversation. Cause I do think that just having somebody there, there are people that are much better at just telling me what they want their website to say, as opposed to writing me a, Hey, here's yes. the pages that I want. Right. So I will document that for them. Like I will, I'll take dictation because, Hey, you just, you just ramble. I will, I will record it. I will take it because you're much better just telling me what you want than you are about writing to me what you want. Yes. So in that case, is there a, is there a, a skill set or a <clears throat> type of person, I guess. I mean, there's, you know, that are, would be good for being that capturer, that person that could go around and say, Hey, let me watch what you're doing. Hey, tell me about that thing that happened and let me catalog it. Do we need a, uh, well, I don't know, what, what are they called in the, uh, like the archives and stuff? The person that goes, you know, that, that is writing down the history. Um, I think, I guess that's an archivist. I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think that there is enormous potential for learning and development here to be that person you're describing. Because for one thing, we, we need to help learners recognize when we have something that, that is needs to be narrated. When you go to somebody and say, show me how you did that. Can you teach me how to do that? Can you tell me how you learned that? Um, we need to, to be more aware of those moments and start picking them out. And I think as L&D people, for one thing, we can get a sense, those of us who are still in the regular classroom business, the, the traditional classroom business, we get a very good sense, I think, of who our better performers are. And rather than us being the ones to teach everything, Cheesecake Factory does this. We'll, we'll go to their top performers or somebody who's exceptionally good at customer service or somebody who is especially good at building one of those architectural salads like they serve, and they'll take, they will video the employee and put it on an intranet site for the rest of the staff to see. And it's, it surfaces the tacit knowledge. It also recognizes that performer a little bit, right? Gives them a little recognition, and it lets the other staff learn from there. So I think there's a lot of room for the training department or L&D to go in and, and identify who and what kinds of things we need to get better at capturing. And that doesn't mean, you know, 10 years ago, we would have gone in, we'd have watched Bill make the salad, then we've gone back to T&D and made a video, starring us, <laughs> right, <laughs> and, and would have, have displayed it that way. So now, you know, the equipment is so much better and the, the technology is so much more accessible, we can just go get built. And I think T&D needs to be aware of that. We don't need for T&D to be the actors. We just need for T&D to be in the role. So they need to identify it. And I think in the case of things like how did you plate and serve 800 hot meals or how did you create the topiary or how did you decorate the wedding cake, or whatever it is, you know, we need to be the ones to help with the technology for that, even if it's just recording on a smartphone. And if stuff's going to be uploaded to the web, we need to be the ones to help that happen. You know, it's not by magic that stuff gets to Flickr or stuff. Get, I, I was working with a group one day that was all hot to have um, this done via blog with employees posting photos to the blog. And I said, well, tell me how they're going to post photos to the blog. And they all gave me this really blank look and said, well, can't you do that? I said, well, I don't know. Let's go set up a blog. Can you set it up so all your employees could post pictures there? And, of course, they came back around and were thinking, no, a Facebook group would work better. A, um, a private, like a NEN group would work for that. But, but figuring out if you want to have X result, how the employee is going to get the thing to you yeah. uh, is another, another role we can play. So to Brian's question, yes, I do think – that we need to start looking at at the role training and development can play. And it may be that, yes, somebody needs to work as an archivist or a tagger or a cataloger or something. But I don't know that that's happening yet. I, if it is, I'm not aware of it. But this is the kind of stuff that isn't necessarily very explicit out in the world. People assume nobody else would be interested in it, and I think they're wrong. Right, and it's also something that may not be 
well supported by an HR job description or anything else. Or they may be calling it something else. Right. I kind of doubt it. I doubt that somebody is tagging, so. you know, watching the repairman do different tasks. I don't and, think and so. Them, but what I what I wrong. what I see a lot is that you have the formal training function, and then um, you, you know whether they're putting up a an LMS or a a, a site for uh, you know the the leadership to share videos or you know something something along those lines you know a site for for content to be placed on. Um, there is talk of crowdsourcing, um, yep. like there's talk of people being able to upload their own content. Um, people some people express concerns and then the whole thing dies. There's usually very little. Um, credence given to that middle ground of let's help people do this well. Um, you know, in the meantime, if you're concerned about um, the curation aspect or the censorship, you know, whatever you want to call, you know, uh, whatever function you want it to be, aspect, then we can do that in the process as well. But let's help people do this. I, I don't see a whole lot of that happening in most organizations, mm, and and, and this is either. as a freelancer as well. So no, I don't, I don't either. And I, you know, I was talking to um, Aaron Silvers one night about all this. I don't, I don't remember when. But, Several months ago, anyway, and he was um, he was saying that that what about people who are camera shy? But you know, you, it doesn't have to be your face that's on camera. It doesn't have to be your face in the picture. You're taking pictures of the work of the cookies right. or the cake or the um, the the Xerox machine tray or the spreadsheet. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be you featured as the the lead character in a video you don't want to be in. So I think that, that there's that. I have seen, and it happens with everything we do, um, I, I, I happened to drop this into a presentation I was doing with a, a private group about social media, and they were just all over it, but it was turning into, we're going to control this, and we're going to go in and make people tell us how they do stuff, and then we're going to make it be in the video. And right. it, you know, it turned into one more bad idea. <laughs> really really fast that we're going to control and we're going to overmanage it you know I, th I think you have to be careful of what you let emerge versus what you start overmanaging nobody wants you to walk up and interrogate them with your iphone in their face with a video running I mean, tell me how you did that show me right now <laughs> and i can see it i can see it happening yeah people be scared to they're making us narrate our work it's killing us <laughs> I have to and tell then you, they're by in the trouble way. for doing it wrong. They they made this great workaround that saved the company money, and then they're in trouble for doing it. So right, exactly. Every, everything has a dark side, right? Well, and the, you know, there's always that one little, well, what if something is wrong? You know, what if one little thing is wrong sort of fear that, I don't know, I, whatever. Um, we don't have it's to do exhausting, that. isn't it? It is. It is exhausting. Um, I have to <laughs> I have to tell you, by the way, your friend's blog on the cookies um, – that was really inspiring to me when I started this um, uh, mountain climbing thing that you were making fun of earlier. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, but I, but I, when I started the process, I realized that I there was so much I didn't know, and there was so much I was learning. Um, and so I, I started a little blog for that too, because uh, you know a lot of people said, "Oh, tell us about the adventure or whatever," and I was like, "Oh, I don't want to put it on my." There are lots of people who don't want to hear about it, uh, so I won't put it all, all on Facebook or on my blog, but I started a little blog just for that because there was so much to learn. But most of that, honestly, was sort of in the beginning stages, and now I'm just kicking myself that I didn't blog about very much of it. But I feel like it's something I'll carry on, hopefully, past this peak. So, I mean, it's just stupid stuff like, well, I go out for training runs a lot on the weekend, and that's as much as anything to get used to my gear, to learn how to use it. A couple of weeks ago, I snowshoed a thousand feet up without my trekking poles because I couldn't figure out how to use them. You know, I figured mm. it out at the top. <laughs> well, I, you know, the other thing, actually, I, I am never doing this. 
I believe that if you leave your computer, you'll get hurt. You should never go outside. You should never do anything physical. <laughs> um, but I do remember you you saying that your your iPhone battery was dying really fast in the cold weather. And I was like, well, there's something wrong with the phone. And then I Googled it because I have an iPhone 5 and it came to light that, yeah, they have a thinner battery. Yes, and there's more surface area and the, the back of the phone is metal so it conducts, you know, there's there are a whole lot of reasons. And so, yeah, that's another thing. I'm testing out my gear. Next training run I do, I'm going to try to wrap it in a one of those hand warmer deal-a-majiggies and see how that goes. Um, right, and but see, that was, that was tacit knowledge capture that was useful for me. Exactly. Although I have no, it, it had nothing to do with mountain climbing. Well, if you are in a cold environment eventually yes. one day, then that might be, that yes. might be useful. Right. But yes, but what was interesting to me, even though I'm a capital L learning person, you know, is that like the the first thing that was overwhelming to me was the physical challenge about this. But very, very quickly it became, I don't know what all these words mean. You know, there's all the, this, these technical things and I don't see anybody's blog who is saying, oh, I'm such a dumbass, I did this. You know, there's a lot of celebration mm -hmm. of, I, you know, I bagged this peak or whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm sure they're out there. You can send them to me, whatever. Um, well, but, some of them, you know, their bodies are left behind. They're just, that's kind of the... Well, there is that too. You know? that, <laughs> that happens. But, you know, Thanks I think, with, um, back, to the, back to the capital L, I think one of the challenges we have, and we're all probably prone to this i don't know if it's it's a result that we all grew up in the industrial age or that this is a product of the industrial age but we have this desperate need to to treat learning as if it's something we can manage and control and quantify and put in check boxes and the truth is i i think almost all learning is really quite serendipitous it's you go out one day and you realize your phone is going dead and you find out the new batteries are thinner. You go up on the mountain without the poles and suddenly you realize why you needed them. I mean, I, I right. think that we, we have this belief that we can manage all of that. And the truth is very often that really is how we learn. Or you happen to run into somebody who says their phone is, is the battery's dying when it's cold. And you happen to look up and it says, oh, the, the new iPhones are thinner. The battery is different. So, I, you know, I, I, I think that we have a fantasy that some of this can be more formal than it ever can be, right? Oh, right. I think the I think the thing for me is how can we capture the success stories, the failure stories, the the correction stories, the how did you fix that? Yep. Um and how do we capture those so that if somebody that's coming in in this apprent if you know if they're an apprentice or if they're if they're being mentored or if they're just a new employee or whatever it is that they can come in and have at least some information that's much more valuable than here's your 18 onboarding right. courses about our products and stuff like that it's much you know it's like hey <clears throat> you know what I, what well, this per you know this person is is a is you know a top performer and they did these things and here's how they got to this level and here's the path that they took so touching on i think somebody else had mentioned was it chad maybe about the you know the idea of like a learning gps about how you know here's here's my path here's what i did where are the points that you can skip or here's the points, you know, and then somebody can go back and say, okay, here's what I did, but here's what I would say you could skip or you could do, you could um, avoid. And all of that information is so, it is very informal. It is very um, serendipitous is what, it, you know, how, but how can we put all of it together to make at least a little bit of, uh, you know, learning something new or learning a new task or process a little bit easier. I think the first thing we have to do is get a whole lot of examples in front of people so they know what in the world we're even talking about. 
Show your work, right? And I'm finally seeing that start to happen with social media. It's taken four years since I got really interested in that or five years. And I'm finally starting to see people saying, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this is not hard. This is not something we have to protect. We're, I'm finally seeing some real use. And I think a lot of it has come from finally getting enough examples, kind of hitting a critical mass that people can see, yes, organizations are using this. Yes, the C-level accepts this. Yes, the employees are doing it. And, I, I, you know, when I talk about narrating work, I am sometimes a little surprised at the people who say, I don't know what that is. Tell me what that means. I, I would assume they'd know. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, I do think, to, you know, back to something you said earlier, Brian, um, we need to find a way to catalog or house or tag or organize this in some way. I would think in the example of the, the copier repair people or, or somebody in a situation where different people in the field are achieving repair or resolution or planting or, or something, we could certainly have a library of videos around that. We could have a library of videos around um, – Around the the example, like Sarah Wessling with the lesson plan that failed and how and how I fixed it, which I think is the bigger the this is why it went wrong and this is how I fixed it. Um, I know that that Mark Britz, when he was uh, with Aspen Dental, and I, he's let me use this example, so I know I can talk about it. The Aspen Dental new hires all did field work, like they had to go out to dental offices, they had to spend time working with the the booking people and the I mean the bookkeeping people and what have you, and they each had to blog quickly about what they were doing every day. It was kind of like a journal or a diary. And and they needed to say not just what they were doing, but what they were learning from it, why we had to learn this. So an example would be somebody had spent the day with the bookkeeper at a dental practice and said, you know, oh my gosh, we handle so many clients here. It's it's easy to see how somebody could fall through the cracks. And now I understand why we have these processes so that doesn't happen. So they are told as part of their induction training that they have to go and, and die. And it's, it's not page after page. It's a paragraph, right? Um, but they have to explain what they're learning and why the organization wanted them to learn it and how it ties into the bigger picture of the organization's work. That could be saved, right? There's no need for that stuff to get deleted after it's, it's recorded. I've seen a number of organizations who feed new hires into mentor groups or, or groups that are overseen by senior people where that conversation could happen or that kind of stuff could be documented. Um, I don't think we, we pay enough attention. We're so busy dealing with our elder senior, I mean, um, uh, subject matter experts that, that I think we need to pay more attention to who the people are who might be our better narrators. And very often, you know, when we're designing something, when we're working with SMEs, the better ones are the ones who are not the ones who've been there the longest, but the ones who most recently became proficient because they remember having to learn it. And they remember what it was like not to know. So if we can start capturing at that level mm -hmm. and recording it and making it available to people in the practice, I think that would be very useful. There's so much potential with new hires because they don't tell you how things used to be. Yeah, You don't get the we don't do it that way here or we never did it that way before. They, and they're up for stuff. So I think the mentor groups and the, the feeding people into communities, uh, you know, all, this, all the new sales guys, all the new RD R&D people, all the new customer service call center staff, you know, getting fed into a community where that kind of information is shared better um, is probably one, one solution to that. Good stuff. Hi. Very good. We could keep going for a really long time on I, this stuff. And was, we started to get into positive deviance, or, or you gave me a, an end to it, but I don't know if you have time to talk about that a little well, bit. I well, do, but first of all, the, the 
I don't know when this will be available online, but um, there's an article on Show Your Work and TND this month in the May issue. There will be a webinar on June 11th uh, that's free. I think you need to register or jump through a hoop or two, but you don't have to have an ASTD membership or a paid membership to come. And so we'll be talking about this. I have a lot of examples. I have a lot of screenshots that may make some of this clearer if the information is really new to folks. So so, um, you can find out about that if you have the Google on your computer, I'm sure. So we will link all of that up and it'll be up within right. within a week probably the end of the weekend so yeah so and i expect this will be popular it's already booked for a couple of conference events as a as a presentation a sort of an extended version of what you saw in vegas so i'm hoping cool. that this will be i'm hoping it'll catch on and we'll see some activity around it i think that it's it's got a lot of potential it's not hard it's not making people do new stuff um it's in some ways just extending what they're already doing so i i, I do think Though, in case this got lost, one of the things uh, that Brian was asking about earlier is just T&D walking around and saying, show me how you did that. Can do you remember learning to do that? Tell me tell me what, what, what you had to learn the hard way. You know, I think we just need to ask people. Sometimes sh- show us what you do. Show me how you did it. So. Right. Be- before yeah, you jump into the... Deviance. Wait, before, before you jump into that, I'm going to make a... a this will be um, two-part. All right, so because uh, James Kingsley... Oh right! Uh, actually, asked a question that is is has a little relation to that. So, um, so he asks um, questions for Jane. One: Do you have another book in the works? Uh, and this this is a two parter though. Your various ap- approaches to solving e learning roadblocks and creating better e learning are inspiring, but positively deviant. See what I did there? <laughs> but I find the biggest hurdle is getting clients to let our team take those risks. Um, and I see this internally also, that, that's my side note. Do you have any advice on how to get clients, SMEs, stakeholders, et cetera, to let you work out of the box? Uh, the answer to question one is uh, the second edition of Better Than Bullet Points is shipping in August and will be available as an ebook with color pictures. Um, <laughs> I imagine we will need to update social media for trainers sometime soon. It's maddening to try to keep a tech book updated. Mad, maddening. So I think that's coming. Um, part two of it, you know, sometimes I, I think sometimes we dig our own holes by suggesting. Let me start over. I think sometimes we dig our own holes by the way we present information. For instance, I have seen, I've been in meetings where somebody with an idea will preface it with, well, I know this is really unusual and no one's ever tried this before, but I think it would be really innovative if we. That will never work in state government. (laughs) Never, ever will I make that point. (laughs) So I, I think we have to be really careful to not make it sound like we're doing something that's way out there on the edge. I used to have a boss. This was kind of funny. And he knows I say this about him. He's retired now. But he wanted us to be cutting edge and state of the art as long as we weren't first. <laughs> so I had to learn to tell him I would lie and say, well, Tennessee is doing this or Virginia is doing that or South Carolina is doing this. And then he would be fine with it. So I think we need to be careful that we don't preface things like they're weird and strange and, and way, way out there. I think that, that the better conversations I have had to your, to the to the problem of getting people to go along with something unusual is is making it very very clear here is the problem here is the here is the problem here is what you said you wanted for the outcome here is how we can get it and i don't harp on the fact that it's new or weird or unproven 
I think I, that depends on how sophisticated your client is. Some clients, just whatever you tell them can be fine. Some of them have been to a trade show and they have really bad preconceived notions. They've got it in their heads that it has to be A, and if it doesn't look like A, then it's not good at all. But, um, but, but I do think how you present that response and sometimes just showing people rather than talking so much um, can make a difference too. Sketching it out, drawing it out, doing a yeah. quick prototype. And yeah. I'm sorry, Judy was trying to say something. No, I was going to say that in some cultures, um, we will re- reinvent the wheel if um, we think that's the innovative thing to do. Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. just in terms of how things are presented, uh, right. some, sometimes that actually, it just depends on the culture that you're in. In my experience, I I Just think saying. so, too, and I don't think I don't think we mean culture in the sense of moving to another continent. I no, think that no, we no, can no. talk about organizational, organizational culture for sure. Um, the same way, but I also say to be fair about it, I appreciate that the second question. You know, I am kind of a force of nature, and the the person who's going to come to me for help is not coming to me wanting me to give them some boilerplate approach. Any, I mean, they know what you see is what you get with Jane, and I think they know what what they're coming to me for. So. Uh, I get asked to do a lot of boring stuff. I'm happy to do boring stuff, but but I also um, am a very big believer in asking for forgiveness. You know, just do it and try. And I am fortunately most of the time in a setting where I can fail and the world will will keep turning. You know, like I said earlier, you know, you have to have the right people. But when I'm working, doing work for a private client or doing work on the side or doing some consulting, I, you, you know, you do have to be responsible for not, not wasting the client's money. But um, I usually try to be really careful not to preface it. I think I, I wrote about this maybe not long ago that sometimes the things we think are so great is exactly what freaks people out. You know, those of us who are in the business who see something cool or neat or interesting or good or 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 cutting edge, you know, we're so excited about it, we don't realize we're scaring, scaring people. Oh, this will be so cool. And the example, I did write about this. The example I used, there was a Grey's Anatomy episode where an intern got to watch in the moment some emergent situation that, that the patient had gone in for some simple heart repair, like to repair a tear or something. And before it was over, they had taken the heart out to do something to it and put it back. The intern was just thought this was the coolest thing in the whole world. And he's all excited. He runs out to tell the husband and the husband is freaking out. Oh my God. It's like, what do you I mean you took my wife's this. heart out? So um, I think that we can be kind of guilty of that. Be careful about the excitement or about acting like, oh, this is going to be so new and different. Of course, you know, the rest of us at the time, we all deal with clients who want you to make a viral video. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. right. Or they, they want to be disruptive without right. actually doing anything that's disruptive at all. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But but I think um, – in my case, I think it, it really is just I am I am kind of a force of nature and I do um, – people tend to think, even though it's not always true, people tend to think I'm a little bit ahead of the curve. And I have had a good track record of predicting what was coming and that – I can't take a whole lot of credit for it, but I do seem to be able to be just a tiny bit – a tiny bit prescient. And I, I get some respect for that, that, that you know, this, this will probably play out this way or that. Good answer. Did I answer the question yeah. finally? I think, yeah. well, okay. well, James can write back and let us know. But thank you for the question, James. And Yes, thank you. And thank you for the compliment also. He started this with, I've been itching for a new toolbar episode. So thank you for listening. Well, there you go. Um, we had one other question as well, I think. Is that right, Brian? Yes. The uh, remarkable, quite remarkable Clark Quinn wants to know if he can have a copy of your slides. 
I got your slides right here, Clark Quinn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come to her webinar on June 11th. Come to my webinar. I'll give you copies. I'm trying something new with my slides. For those of you who don't know what this is about, I do not understand this obsession with wanting copies of people's slides that you then leave behind in a hotel room. I don't get it. But um, most of my slides are, they are either almost all blank, there's no words on them, or they're screenshots from some book or other, and I don't really have the rights to distribute them. So rather than do that, I will more often than not have a Digo list of links for, you know, the resources I mentioned, um, links to articles I reference, links to the research I'm talking about, or, or some live examples. I am trying that um, with the Positive Deviant tomorrow webinar with um, Pinterest. I'm doing a Pinterest board instead. Nice. And we'll see how that flies. But I don't understand. I especially don't understand. I want a copy of your slides two minutes after the thing has started. They don't even know what you're going to talk about yet. I have found out in a couple of instances because people were stealing the presentation, just delivering it as their own, which is fine, I guess. But, you know, I can't really control that much anymore because now people come to conferences and just take pictures of your screens. Yeah. And there's only so much I can control with that. And, and the disturbing thing is, in a business where we keep talking about ethics and copyright, not long ago, I saw um, an entire webinar presentation of mine captured as screenshots and uploaded to SlideShare. And it did have my name on it, but I didn't know anything about it, and they didn't have permission to do it. Mm. And because these are just you know slides that I'm showing in a, in a webinar session, there isn't technically a, a site that they're copyrighted on. There's not a copyright statement I can refer to. So SlideShare won't really do anything about that. So I wonder how much of SlideShare is scraped without attribution or something. But, yeah, but that doesn't mean that you don't hold the copyright. I mean, oh, that's No, that's but it, it also makes it very hard for me to pursue much about it. And you deal mm. with something the size of a SlideShare, a Twitter, or a Facebook, it's probably not worth it. Yeah. I, I have bigger problems with people stealing e-copies of my books and, and torrenting them, and the publisher has lawyers who deal with that for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I'll get Clark some slides he'll enjoy. Perfect, <laughs> perfect. I'm, I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Well, Jane, thank you very much for being on the show. Sure. I, uh, I know we've been trying to schedule this for a while, and it's, uh, it's good to finally get this thing done and we are uh, we are going to talk about positive we are going to talk about oh, I was about geez. to say we're, I didn't even, we're yeah. go for it thanks for making me edit Brian um yeah um no you were starting to talk about uh going to the people who do things well with an organization and just having them uh mm -hmm. quote unquote train others um and that just seemed to be going into you know the realm of positive deviance and i'd like to talk a little bit about that and how you feel it can be very uh, like a force for change in our field uh yeah but first of all let me say i think when we talk about going to the people who are good at doing something we need to be better at identifying those people and getting access to them because you know sometimes that's a political answer yeah Oh, you need to go talk to Judy because she's been here the longest. Oh, well, you need to go talk to Brian. He's not really the best we have, but he supervises everybody. I mean, you need to. we need to figure out how to manage the politics of that. So um, very often, I suspect the people who are really great at something are probably in the basement somewhere hiding from the, <laughs> the rest of us. Hey, but don't don't mess with their red stapler. Um, you know, I have been interested in positive deviance uh, for for quite a while. It it started as a, or was first called that or emerged as that when uh, I guess in the eighties when a guy named Jerry Sternen and his wife Marilyn were sent by Save the Children. They were sent to Vietnam to do studies on child 
malnutrition to find out what was caused, what what the root causes were, and to fix it, to find out how we could improve it. And they went into a village where, and I'm going to get this a little bit wrong, 74% of the children were malnourished. A very poor village. And, you know, the typical question there would be to say, oh, well, we've identified these many children malnourished and these are the things we need to do and these are the people we need to train and these are the resources we need to bring in. And that would be a very sound approach is what we're used to doing. But the Sternans looked around and said, you know, in this village, why is it with everything else being equal that 36% of the children are not malnourished? And that really is essentially um, – the, the crux of the matter is sort of asking the opposite question, flipping the question over, uh, looking for assets, looking for things that are going well, looking at where things are going right rather than this problem focus. Why are they starving? And what they found was that they had village mothers. The, the, the answer was in the community. Um, it was not something that an external source needed to bring in and solve for them. The, the children who were not malnourished were, were with mothers who fed foods that the other mothers weren't feeding like sea shrimp and, and stuff like that. They were um, washing the children's hands before they ate. They were feeding more frequent meals. It apparently was was common to feed children two meals a day rather than three, and, and these mothers were feeding more frequently. And they were bucking the village elders who had very – I mean, think about Asian cultures, these really long-established traditions and rituals and stuff in place. And those people were seeing a much better rate of, of – they had better nourished children. They were doing better. And and the Sternans used those those mothers as the community educators. So it was an internal resource with an internal solution with internal people who were already accepted. They had – and. 85% drop in malnutrition in a year, and the change was sustained. So it's exactly what we talk about in our business of needing to get learning transfer and needing to get a, you know, a solution in place. So, so I, I, and I'm guilty of this. Um, I think a lot of us like to fancy ourselves individually as positive deviants, but really the positive deviant is the person who given the same resources everyone else has, somehow gets a better solution. And it's particularly uh, when it emerges from a community. It's more a community-based solution than, than some rogue individual who happens to have a, a, a better, you know, builds a better mousetrap. Um, but I'm very, very interested in the idea of, of positive deviance. There are a lot of positive, positive deviance projects underway. Uh, that that get assorted funding through the Positive Deviance Initiative and and some organizations where they acquire grant money through that. But in terms of of us, in terms of the workplace, uh, Atul Gawande has also written about this, and he he writes about things like we've all heard about the problems with staff infections in hospitals, right? That is rampant, that it's uncontrollable. We've heard about the problems with hand washing, and he gives the example of a hospital with a runaway staff infection rate, but the question he asked was, why are the infections in Ward 4 so low? Not, why are the infections so high everywhere else and how can we get them down? So going in and looking at where something was different, looking at where something was better, looking at where there was really a solution in place was where the positive deviant was looking for answers. So given all other equal resources, that was their focus, was to take a look at not why the infection rate was so high in 90% of the wars, but why it was so low in 10%. And what they found actually in this case um, was that doctors were not very good about washing their hands. And I know that icks everybody out, but the truth is doctors are busy. You go from patient to patient. I, I used to work in a hospital and very few people are aware that when we talk about hand washing, you mean you take off your rings, you take off your watch, 
you scrub for four minutes. Um, and it's hard to do that when you have patients wanting to shake your hand, right? So they found the doctors weren't washing their hands very well, but they also found that they had uh, a, a couple of senior nurses who were not scared to challenge the doctors and say, did you wash your hands? Where the other wards did not have that, that was really kind of the difference, was a, a, an assertive person or two in place who was calling them out. So that's the positive deviant. So the the part of that, that that I wanted to talk about because I think that sort of identifying the um, the star performer or whatever in training is is not always done certainly, but but sort of a classic of our field. The, what where where I was really interested in what deviated um, from what we do in training, at least when I read mm -hmm. the, the Vietnam article, um, mm -hmm. was that they specifically said, okay, we've identified these um, people who have these much better practices. Um, we're not going to do formal training. Mm -mm. We're going to do this whole other thing instead um, mm -hmm. of a community-based sort of grassroots effort. And truthfully, I'm not sure that what they did deviated all that much from training. It's just that it didn't come from them. It came from the, the mothers who had healthier children um, in, that, in that case. But what, I, what I'm wanting to get at here is back to our issue of, well, if we're not going to do formal training, how can we control it, blah, blah, blah. You know, what, what, do you, um, what do you suggest, what would you say to people who have concerns um, about using this more community-based approach instead of we're going to formally train them. Well, well, but I think you're right um, that, that they were using internal versus external sources, but the internal sources were also very credible. It's hard to argue with the mothers who were sitting there with healthier children than yours. Yeah. Right. So I think, um, and I don't know that it was in the sense of they sat down with PowerPoint and said, here's how you fix this unusual meal. But I do think that it was, it was more a matter of the mothers working one-on-one -on -one with, with, the, with the mothers of the undernourished children, with the families that were having, having problems. Um, again, I think that it is our – for your question, I think it is our, our desperate need for training to be the external one who swoops in and delivers rather than leverage the resources in-house. And I will give you an example. I'm not saying this is a positive deviant example, but several years ago, I was the training director for the Justice Department, and I had had predecessors who did stuff like force people at gunpoint to sit through harassment training if it was mandated and the governor said they had to have it or else. But they were not – there was not a culture of workplace learning. There was not any kind of culture of even – even orient. they didn't even have new hire orientation. You know, it was all about go and hang out with the personnel officer and maybe you get all the paperwork signed and, and maybe you have health insurance. I mean, there's nothing, nothing in place. And so I was introducing uh, a package leadership program that the state happened to own that I had access to. You know, we'd paid for it and we had all this stuff. And I was having a really hard time getting um, – participation it wasn't taken very seriously and my boss actually came up with this idea he said you know what and and before we were done we had decided a couple of senior ma middle managers who liked this kind of stuff we got them certified and they were my co-trainers nice. and all of a sudden I didn't have the um, credibility problem anymore I didn't have enrollment problems once mm -hmm. they were involved with it like these mothers of the undernourished children suddenly I had a lot more credibility with the bigger community so I think that was what was happening in Nepal. And I don't know 
why training, and I've seen this a lot, seems to be really hesitant to do that. I didn't think what I was doing was that extraordinary, but it seems like I was one of the only people who ever did it, at least in, in the government arena, in the state government arena, was to just get people from the community to be partners in the training. And it took, it was less heat for me. You know, it was a lot less work for me. Because when somebody's getting certified, they have to do all the stuff. <laughs> um, but but you know, I I do think when the when the community has the solution, pulling it out and letting them do it. But we've seen this a lot. I've used the example of of um, you know the manager. You got fifty managers in a building, and one of them is just really good. They're able to get stuff done. They're not compl- you know always missing deadlines. Their staff don't quit on them. You know why is it that this one person with all other things being equal can be so much better and that's the person we need to pay more attention to to how they do their job and how they manage their work um the the same thing with the um what was the other example i had and i think this is my favorite i don't know if you know who richard byrne is but he's on twitter as i think rm byrne and he has a blog called mr byrne i think it's mr byrne teaches oh i have read his blog his specialty is his specialty is finding free low cost easy whatever tools for for teachers to use in education. I think he's a PE teacher. He is prolific. He's one of the most prolific people in the field I've ever met. And so you go into a school, there are 50 teachers who tell you they don't have time to learn about technology, and then here stands this guy. You know, and clearly he has he has figured out a way that this is a priority and then he's making time. Now, maybe it's not just a time management issue and it's certainly an interest issue, but he is what I would call the classic deviant in that case. He is what every school needs three of. Um, and he's figured out if he blogs about it, he can share it with the whole world and not just with himself. So there's another case of he is implicitly teaching others, although he's yeah. not sitting there doing classes. I think right. that, that that actually kind of does bring us around to the beginning. The the, mm-hmm. the positive deviant then, you know, turns around, narrates their work uh-huh. and spreads... I know you don't believe in best practices, but better practice. Better practices, next practices. Right. I don't, it's not that I don't believe in best practices. I've seen what happens to them. Um, yeah. you, and I think it's mostly the not invented here syndrome. You know, the community, yeah. and that's one of the examples with positive deviance, is that the community is very quick to say, well, well, that's not how we do things, and that won't work here, and it won't work for us, and it doesn't fit. I, I mean, that's one of the challenges with bringing in external expertise or an external solution is that people can kick it to the curb really quickly. Where, where if it emerges from the community or they're working with their own resources or the mothers are sitting there, you know, saying we're feeding these foods and you're not, it's hard. Right. <laughs> it's harder to have an yeah, argument. Totally. Um, against that, but but I think the the bigger point is, and and I I hope people walk away understanding this. The issue is, again, with with everyone with with equal resources for some reason in any group there there's a subgroup that will come out with a, a better outcome a better solution a better response you know we need to pay more attention to those people because it's not a resource problem or else they found a way to get more resources than anybody else yeah all right sweet i think that we might be uh approaching our limits that's good because it's past my bedtime here right. on the east coast that, I, have that's, to work. That's, I have to go do my job 
That's kind of what I, with where my I thought beer. we might be. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm finished with my tea long ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, this this is great. This I, was this was you. an absolutely fabulous conversation. Well, um, have a good uh, webinar, which will be just in a few days when this is published. And um, Brian and I need to tell everybody we are taking hiatus for the summer. Um, so you can listen to this uh, episode with Jane over and over and over <laughs> until we return in the fall. Um, and have a good summer, everyone. All right. Thanks for having me. This was this was way fun. This was lovely. Okay. All right, kids. You, have Jane. a good summer. All right. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye, guys. There you have it. Hey. Judy again. We have one more very exciting announcement. We have a new monthly podcast co-hosted by me and... And by me. This is Julie Dirksen. And the name of our new podcast is The Design Box, Unpacking Instructional Design, where we'll be talking about the field of instructional design, design thinking, and what we can learn from other kinds of design as well. Join us very soon on Emergent Radio.